I, I think that we, to have a seat at the table and to be able to push forward the field of simulation, VR, AR, mixed reality, online learning, all this stuff. Yeah, we need to have the seat at the table. And I think the only way, again, to have that seat at the table and to grow your own career is to have sort of a foundation here. Mr. Cutson's opinions are his solely and not of his employer or any affiliated entities. Welcome back to the Sim Geeks podcast. We are your hosts, William Belk and David Schablock. And today we are joined by Jared Cutson from Mount Sinai. Uh, we're going to be jumping in in a little bit to talk about some education theory. We're going to let Jared lead us through all that. We'll go, you know, do our normal question and answer thing. But first, I want to give Jared a chance to introduce himself. So Jared, if you'll give us your background, where you're working, what you've done in simulation, and then anything else you feel like we should know about you. That's a loaded question. You can be here for a while with this answer. Um, I'm really grateful to be on the podcast today. My name is Jared Cutson. I am a, an associate professor of emergency medicine and medical education at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and a senior director for the Simulation Teaching and Research Center at the Mount Sinai Hospital. But I'm a nurse by background. And so I have a really fun role where I get to be in the medical school and interact with the residents and faculty and fellows. But then when necessary, I can throw on my nursing hat and play in that sandbox for a little bit as well. You know, uh, there's a few other things. So I started off a number of years ago as a firefighter and an EMT in the pre-hospital care environment. And I still get to play in that arena as well. I sit on a couple of state councils and state boards for EMS and nursing. Uh, most recently, I'm a member of the Society for Simulation and Healthcare's board of directors. So that's, you know, a little bit about me. I have a, a, a couple of different hats that I get to wear during the day and, and, you know, they all sort of blend together. Nice. Well, it's good to have you on the podcast. You know, the reason you're here is I actually got to see a talk you had at SimOps. And, you know, I, I, I touched on educational theories here and there, and it's it's a little dense and it's kind of hard to approach. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's difficult to wrap your brain around. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to attend your class and it was outstanding. I really enjoyed it. And that is when, when I, when we went through that course, I kind of like ran out the door after I thanked you profusely. <laughs> and I was like, well, we got to have him on the podcast because it is so important to know and at least have a basic understanding of some of these and uh, for, for everyone in the simulation arena. And so um, we wanted to have you on and kind of explain it. So if you want to start by even, you know, just talking about how you approach it and why you think it's important to have a, a basic understanding and in, in of these modalities. Yeah. So, you know, what, what I didn't say in the introduction is, I, you know, I saw, I started off with a degree in health education from a community perspective. And then I went to nursing school um, and then I went to grad school and got a degree in health policy and management because I thought running a hospital sounded like a fun thing to do one day. Mm. And while, while, while in grad school, I got introduced to the field of, of simulation and healthcare simulation. Um, and, and I started working up in the, in the greater Boston area and uh, in patient safety and healthcare quality, but got roped into this, into this world of simulation. Um, so I went back and got a, a master's degree in medical education and then uh, got a doctorate and finishing a PhD. And so, you know, along the way, uh, what I started to realize when I was sitting in all of these classes, that what made the most sense to me was the really hands-on learning. 
When I was a, an undergraduate student, I did, I did not do so well in biology freshman year. I think I barely got out of there with my GPA intact. And what I started to realize was like, the things that I really liked doing was, was all hands-on. And when I went through the fire academy and the EMS academy, it was all about doing, right? There was some lecture, there was some learning that you did there, but it was really about getting your hands on things. And so when I got introduced to simulation, it was through a, a mentor of mine, Jenny Rudolph, who was a, actually a faculty member of mine in grad school. She was teaching a couple of courses at Boston University. And she told us, those of us in the MPH program, that we should go back to our offices, think about what we said during our meeting, and think about how we could change it for next time. And I thought that was all well and good uh, if I had an office. And sort of being the wise ass 20 something year old, I went up there after class. I'm like, listen, this sounds really cool and really great. But like, I work in an emergency department. It's get me this, get me that. I need this. I need that. Can you explain to me how anything you just said relates to me? And I was one of the few clinicians in this, in the MPH program, probably the only clinician in the room. And she said, that's a really interesting question. Why don't you come see what I do outside the university? And she dropped me into a simulation. That was my first exposure. And I was like, holy cow, mm -hmm. this is how I learn." Right. Mm -hmm. And then I thought back to the fire academy and they were explaining to us how smoke rises and why you want to stay low in a fire. Right. We've all heard this as kids. Get low in a fire, crawl on your bellies. Air is cleaner down there. But when I went to the fire academy, they put us in a building. It was about six stories tall and they lit a, a drum of oil on fire in the middle and they sat in there talking to us. And after about six or seven minutes, the smoke started coming down and down and down. And you start breathing it in and you sort of started smelling it and coughing on it. And they told everybody, get down on a knee. And we stayed in there because the air was clean for another 30 seconds. And 30 seconds later, you started smelling and breathing it again. And they said, sit down on the floor. And then another 15 seconds, you started breathing and smelling it. Then they said, lay down and crawl out. I'll never forget that. Right. And so when you have that opportunity to be immersed in a world like that, learning gets to stick a little bit better. And so when I started taking educational classes, I learned about Kolb's experiential learning cycle, hmm. which is what Dr. Rudolph, Jenny Rudolph was explaining a little bit as well. This concept of where you have a concrete experience, you do something and then you reflect upon it. And then you, have this abstract conceptualization about it, like thinking and learning from that experience. And then you do some active experimentation, right? You try out what you have learned. That's the fire academy again, right? So they're teaching us in a room about venting a roof. Mm -hmm. There's a concrete experience. We went up to the roof. We then talked about what we did. We then learned from that. And then we went back up and tried it again and again and again. And so when I got out of the academy and started in nursing and I started in the healthcare field and got interested in simulation. I was like, wait a minute, this is how I always learned. This is why I excelled in this. And so that's sort of the first process of, of all the simulation that we do is that, is that idea about Kolb's experiential learning cycle. So you're saying that this is basically things that we already do. So, and I find this a lot in life is where I really 
get it to sink in when I put a framework around it. And when, you know, it's something I'm already doing, but it sticks so much better when I understand why I'm actually going through it because I'm doing it regardless, but it, it, it rounds out the thinking better and I can get it to, you know, understand better. Well, and I think it's about play, right? And so gamification, play, active experimentation, all of these ideas where you get to, to do something and figure it out. I mean, listen, I'm not the most handy person around my house, but I've learned how to drill a hole in the wall. The first time I made the hole too big. The next time I made it the right, a little bit closer to the right size. And then I realized I need to put a molly to hang a picture on the wall because the picture fell off the first time. That's, that's experiential learning right there because you're doing it, you're learning from it, you're doing it again and again and again. So, you know, when you start thinking about all the things that we do on your, in, in your daily life, these ideas about educational theory sort of start weaving, weaving through a lot of the stuff that we do. And so when I, early on, when I started out, I wasn't an educator. I was an operations person. I was the person who like sitting behind the computer, you know, manipulating the vital signs, the moolahs. Well, let me, let me rephrase that. Back, back when I started out, I got pulled into a sim center by a, a, a dear friend of mine, Chuck Posner from the Stratus Center up at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital. Mm-hmm. And he's like, hey, man, come down and see what I'm doing. And he's like, watch this coaching course that we run. And I like hung out after work there for a couple of days. And then a couple of days turned into a couple of days a week. Um, and then one day he's like, hey, man, you're teaching. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, I got to go. And, and like, nice enough guy, but he like sat in the room next door. He told me he had to leave. He sat in the room next door and just threw me like trial by fire. But, I, but that's how I started out was like, you had to do everything. Right? Mm-hmm. You had to teach, you had to, you had to run the mannequin, you had to troubleshoot the mannequin, you know, and as the simulation society has grown, I think we've started, you know, mm-hmm. role clarification and role delineation a little bit more, but I still think that people and individuals who are in the operation specialist role, there's such a, there's, there's a career path today that wasn't there 15 years ago. And I think there's an opportunity for our operation specialists who are, you know, could be paramedics, could be EMTs, could be respiratory therapists, could be non-clinical individuals. For them, video to production, re- <laughs> video production, sure, to really take ownership of some of this content and be able to teach it. But I think to to be able to work with their educational colleagues, especially in institutions of higher education or academic settings um, or academic medical centers, you have to be able to speak a common language and speak that same language, which is kind of what I was trying to get across when I did the course at SimUp that you attended, right? And we talked about four main learning theories when we were doing the course at SimUps. And those, those learning theories were really, in essence, trying to expose the operations specialists to the highest level so that when they went back to their worlds, they could sit with their educational experts or their CHSEs or their EDDs and at least say, when someone says, hey, this is why we're asking these questions. This is what we're looking for, for our facilitators to do. They'd be like, oh, it makes sense. I see how this, this all comes together. Yeah, so you brought up, just briefly, we talked to, you know, we mentioned serious gaming or trying to bring in gamification. And one of the coolest things I think about that, and, and you're spot on with exactly where I was going to go, is anytime we can tie that experience back together, right? So we have experiential learning or using Kolb's cycle. What we're looking for is simply saying, okay, I need a memorable experience that's tied to one educational event so that you can then in the future, anytime that comes up, it's going to come up again. You're going to remember it. 
And mm -hmm. so one of the things we've been working on recently, uh, and I know I've had this conversation with Eric Bowman as part of another class that I, that I took recently, is basically game, using games that we're already familiar with, right? And so one of the things we're doing right now is we, we just rebuilt the game Cranium. I don't know if you guys remember this. It was mm -hmm. about 20 years ago Cranium came out. Uh, and in Cranium, you get a trivia question, but you may not be able to answer it verbally. You may have to sculpt it in clay or draw it on a pixel, like on a Pictionary board, right? Or act it out in charades. And we're using that now in our labs for that exact reason. Because if I have to sculpt something in clay, I'm probably going to remember that for a long time. Right? It's, I'm going to be anytime that subject comes up, I'm going to be able to tie it right back to that one time I had to make it out of clay, right? To draw it, and nobody knew what I was drawing, etc. Um, and so I think you you kind of said on it. Do you have do you have anything you want to elaborate there as far as education theories surrounding that use of gamification or maybe going into more serious games than just gamification of things we already do? Well, I, I think I think what you're talking about, right? And when you're talking about forming something out of play, we're talking about higher level action verbs, right? And so we can talk this talk about Bloom's taxonomy. And so, so frequently we have people writing curriculums and they're living at the low level of, of the scale, right? And so the low level of the scale being remembering or understanding as the major categories where you have things like identify or define or, you know, one of those other, other action verbs that's pretty low level, like, you know, recall, right? And so as you move along the, the continuum from remembering and understanding, to the higher level action verbs, we get into those topics such as apply or analyze, evaluate, create. And so when you're talking about molding something out of clay, you're talking about creating. And so if an individual can create something, there's, there's a likelihood that they're gonna remember it more like you said, but you can also, and, and David's holding something, Bloom's cognitive taxonomy, there you go. Um, and so, and that's, that's a great sliding scale. I think if I remember correctly, those come from an axle. I think we bought yep. those a couple that's of years ago it. from my shop. And like, that's such a great tool to be able to slide down. And I challenge people, and David heard me say this when I was given, given the, the workshop. I challenge people to go back and start, don't live in that, that early column. Move that slider down. Keep your Bloom's taxonomy on the wall behind your computer and be like, hey, let's go to the right. Let's figure out how we get to, you know, writing, filming, creating, solving, role-playing, you know, hypothesizing, measuring, whatever those, those verbs are on the site. I mean, hey, what are, what are you all doing here? You're podcasting, you're creating something, right? And so what that does when you write objectives that push you to the right side of Bloom's taxonomy and those higher level verbs, it changes the way in which you need to create your curriculum. Right? Because I can't stand up in front of a room and give a lecture and expect people to be able to create anything. Right? There's no way that I can measure that outcome. That outcome assessment is null and void because I didn't provide the opportunity for them to actually meet that higher level verb. And so actually, that's a really nice segue um, into the other topics that, that I spoke about at SimOps. Um, and, and I repeated the, the talk and, and the workshop, it's really much more of a workshop at, um, at IMSH. And that brings us into Kern's six-step model of curriculum development. And Kern's is a model that um, is espoused in the medical community. And it really talks about the way that you begin to write your curriculum. And it begins with a general needs assessment, like why are you even doing this? Mm -hmm. And then it focuses to a targeted needs assessment, right? In the world, however many thousands of people die from central lines. 
And at my institution, X number of people get central line infections. All right, so now we have a real need. And then it goes to recording your objectives and writing those objectives and then coming up with your educational strategies, right? And simulation is just but one of many educational strategies. And so I'm thinking about if I'm in a class and I'm teaching a 15 week long course, one of my objectives really needs to be, multiple of those objectives need to be on the right side. Early on, I'm gonna expect them to recall, identify, right? Regurgitate, whatever the right verb is for, for the first couple of weeks of class. But by the end of their class, by the end of their residency, by the end of nursing school, whatever the, the, the uh, forum is, I want them to be able to put that into practice. I want them to, to critique. I want them to assess. I want them to, to develop something, right? And then the next part of those education of, of current six-step model is the implementation actually doing that, the evaluation component of it. And so it's a cycle, it's a circle, but all of those points within the circle are, are interconnected because they keep referring back to one another. But to me, that really important link is objectives to educational strategy. There is absolutely no reason for a faculty member of mine to write a curriculum that says, recall and do it in the Sim Center, right? That's not the purpose of simulation. No, you made a good point, Jared. So really our end goal, and again, I, I, I wear multiple hats, right? But our end goal is improve patient outcomes. And that should always be the, the end goal of what we're teaching, right? And so in order to do that, it's more than just, okay, you need to be able to understand how to answer these questions. You have to not only be able to apply it in the lab, but it has to change. It has to fundamentally change the way you do patient care in order to improve patient outcomes in the end. Well, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna push back a little bit on that. Okay. Because improving patient outcomes, and while generally I agree, uh, patient outcomes can be improved, there are probably some areas and units out there that are doing things pretty well. and so. Maybe it's maintained those patient outcomes. Fair enough. And I think it's dependent upon your learner population, right? Because if I have a bunch of nursing students, are they really impacting patient outcomes? No, but I want them to be competent providers when they get out there, right? And so, so yes, in, in, in many worlds, when I'm talking to the hospital executives, it's about patient safety, it's about quality of care outcomes, but those are really hard things to measure and to say simulation really makes an impact. But competent individuals, Right, maybe a little bit easier to assess, um, and we can we can we can measure that a little bit. So that's just it's just something it's something to think about in terms of in terms of how we frame these conversations, right? Because you know I don't I don't want it to solely be about the hospital environment because academia is mm -hmm. such a strong player in simulation, and and you know saying that simulation is going to fix all of your problems and thinking it's a magic bullet, I mean we know it's not, but that's why. I also think that our educational specialists and our simulation educators can't just be simulation educators. Yeah. They need to be like, educators in general. I feel and, like we and, debated some of this in our sim court thing that we just did a few weeks ago. <laughs> like, I feel like this Which came up multiple bit. times with competency versus you know being able to, we went through quite a bit of this. Which we uh, want to bring, but, some but, of you, but, but, bring but, you and a couple of people back to talk about sim court in a future episode. It, well, hey, SimCourt was a fun, fun venue to debate some of these topics. But what I was, what I was gonna, what I was gonna say was the, um, the importance of, of framing this conversation around patient safety or or your or your learner group is 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 really you know kind of a vital importance, um, because we are, I don't think we should just be looked at as as simulation educators, right? There's there's online content development. 
you have to be good at that. And that includes video content development. That includes alternative ways of getting your message across prior to them coming to simulation. It's VR, it's AR. It's and knowing where system, it goes in. It's systems integration and figuring out how that educational modalities fit together. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that I, I really push for is, hey, we are a resource. We're, you know, the way my organization, I look at it as like, we're an internal consultant, we're a resource. You wanna shoot a video, come on down. You wanna create online content, come on down. Yeah, we have a whole department who do that. Most of their content is like a slideshow that you click next on, right? Mm -hmm. It's not very interactive. One of the things we were talking about gamification a couple of minutes ago um, was I took the concept of an escape room and then we translated it into healthcare. And so now we've been doing escape rooms for our, our a bunch of different activities, including um, uh, introductions and um, ice breaking activities, getting some, some teamwork communication skills worked out. But then obviously the pandemic hit. So we translated that to the virtual. We created a whole mm -hmm. virtual escape room. Right. And, and this all we started because, hey, we had a sim center and the room wasn't being used. And let's mm -hmm. utilize it for something else. But what was the educational strategy that we were employing? And what was the objective? The objective was to talk about teamwork and communication. And the challenge that I got faced with was how do you teach teamwork and communication to the chair of surgery and an intern from the emergency department and a nursing student at the same time? Mm -hmm. Right. The common thing is drop them in a cardiac arrest, have some chaos. Talk about teamwork and communication, but that's not fair to anybody. The nursing student doesn't know basic CPR. The intern doesn't feel like they could be a leader because there's a chair of surgery there. The chair of surgery hasn't been in a cardiac arrest in 25 years, but they feel like they need, how is that fair? So instead let's level the playing field. Let's drop them into an environment that we create in the Sim Center that becomes an escape room. And then everyone's got to solve puzzles together and the hierarchy has been leveled. And we can mm -hmm. still talk about role clarity, teamwork, communication, interpersonal dynamics, all that good stuff. But that all comes back to the educational objective and that, and if I, if I, if I will, the current six-step model, I'm really thinking about how we push ourselves to that right side of, of Bloom's taxonomy. So, okay, we've talked about a few and we've, we've touched on this stuff and how I approach this is why people need to get their, you know, their toes in the water and learn this stuff is, is a couple of things that come right off to, to front of my mind is if you want to go after a certification, whether it be the CHSE, whether it be the CHSOS, you need to have some basic understanding of this because you're going to be tested on it and you should know anyways. The other place is I remember the very first IMSH I went to sit, submit for and it said must be submitted in Bloom's taxonomy. I'll be completely honest didn't know what the heck it was talking about. I had, I had to Google it. And I think even for the next submission, uh, when they said, no, you need to rewrite this in Blooms, I went to Will and I said, uh, help me fix this. So give, give somebody the Reader's Digest of what Blooms is. We'll start with that one. And you know what is it, how to apply it. And, and this is definitely an episode that we're going to have some references and we're going to have some you know, things to, for people to download because it is you know, a, a big topic, but give them just the, the touch of it. What is it and, and why? So we, we mentioned it a little bit earlier. Bloom's taxonomy is a collection of verbs that you should utilize when you are writing your objectives. So you referenced IMSH and writing it in Bloom's form. And so the easiest way that I think about this is to write, to write a statement out. And so if you want to take out a piece of paper right now and write it, go, mm -hmm. by the end of this course, my participants or my learners will be able to. Then you go to Bloom's taxonomy, 
which has, yep, which you are holding there. It has six categories. And the categories are remembering, understanding, applying, analyzing, evaluating, and creating. And you pick a verb out from underneath one of those categories. So by the end of this course, by the end of this podcast, by the end of this session, my participants will be able to define what Bloom's taxonomy is. By the end of this course, by the end of this podcast, my participants will be able to pick a verb, debate the value of learning educational theories. And it's so, using terms that, that actually apply and, and push the education forward? It uses, it gives you a verb, which you then have to figure out how you're going to create educational content to meet that, to meet that objective. So by the end of this course, my participants will be able to compose a well-written objective. Whoa, very different than identify a well-written objective, right? Because at the end of the day, if I said identify, I'll give you three choices and you'll be able to pick out which one's written correctly. But compose one means I'm going to say, go write something and turn it into me. So it leads me to my educational objective, my educational methodologies, as well as my assessment methodologies. And, and rather than at the end of this, I can maybe like say an AHA, you know, I can say what the H's and T's are. It's more of a push it forward of, no, I need to actually be able to apply that and put some work in on it. That's what you're saying is you're going to compose. So it's, it's pushing the education and more focusing what your learning objectives are to get a higher education or a higher understanding. Sure, ex exactly. And so you, you know, going back to your H's and T's, can you identify the H and T's? Or can you differentiate or can you um, can you solve and, and, and identify, you know, the causative factor? Yeah, and I know the words have changed, you know, I, there's actually a good graphic out there somewhere on the Internet where it shows like what the words were in 1956 when originally published and how we use them now. Right. Uh, yeah, and so. Re revi the revised taxonomy, if you will. Exactly. Um, so we've changed the words to be more current of like, okay, can you create or synthesize something versus can you just identify? And like, and, and you guys have that sliding scale. I actually just have a graphic on my computer that has the six columns and each one just tells me the words you can use. It doesn't really explain the level. It just goes from left to right. Yep. Um, and, you know, it well, depends on, what, really, on what you're trying to develop. Really, the, the, the good, the, the, the other graphics are of a triangle, right? We love triangles in healthcare. You look at team steps, you look at the triple <laughs> yep. aim, whatever, right? The we path. love triangles, right? But Bloom's taxonomy is really a triangle. And what you're talking about from 1956 was that it was nouns, right? So the, the, the major or overarching categories were nouns. It was knowledge and comprehension and application. And in the early 2000s, they switched over to verbs. So apply and analyze and then they switched um evaluate evaluate dropped down one create became the top but if you think of it as a, as a pyramid you're remembering you're understanding verbs you're, you're the verbs that fall under those categories are really your foundation right lower level verbs more novice learners you want them to be able to pick something out but when you get higher level you want people to evaluate and, and create i think about this about my daughter who's in kindergarten right now she should be able to pick out a letter Right. But then as you grow, as you grow up and you get better, you should be able to apply that letter and be able to do something, form some words, right? With the ABCs. And then by the end, you expect to be able to create something, create a story, create a book, create a paper, whatever it might be. And so we see this in, in even childhood education about having a solid foundation and building up more to higher level verbs and higher level outcomes. I had a very rude introduction to Bloom's taxonomy. 
the first time I was ever introduced to Bloom's taxonomy was in a job interview for an educator position. And it was, I got oh. asked like, Oh, you know, what is Bloom's taxonomy and how do you use it? And I, I just said, I don't know. I truthfully don't know that I apply it. Now it's funny. Cause then once you go back and you look, it's like, of course I do this. Like, this is how all yeah. of us write objectives. Right. Um, but at the time I had no idea the term I hadn't heard the term before. And some reason, framework, I still got the call back for the second interview. And I damn sure knew it when I walked into the second interview. Uh-huh. And of course, what's the first thing they ask? Like, Hey, when we talked to you a couple weeks ago, we asked you a question. Do you want to elaborate on that? And I just vomited everything, right? Like just throw everything out nice. there. I'm like, here's what I've learned in the last couple of weeks, you know? Um, but yeah, my my initial was like, oh, deer in the headlights. Like, oh shit, I'm supposed to know this. You guys are asking me questions and I don't, but I, then I, then I just admitted, like, I don't know what this is. And I think that bought me some points, which is the only reason I got called back, right? If I had lied about <laughs> it or tried to make something up, I would have been hosed. I think back to my EMT uh, instructors in the academy, right? And so often they're like, do it this way, do it this way, do it this way, because mm-hmm. they're trying to beat things into people so that they can push on an EMT course, 120 hours, 150 hours. We got to get people in. We gotta feel... But like as a paramedic, you got to start thinking through things more mm-hmm. as a nurse, as a physician, you have to start thinking through things more. Even as an EMT, you really need to be thinking through things more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's sometimes as an instructor, you're taught you're taught to just push information out and correct the actions but we know in simulation it's not about correcting the actions it's about mm-hmm. correcting the framework mm-hmm. and the individual's frame about it and so we really want to move people from being instructors to facilitators or to educators and that's where that's where this piece comes in of understanding the basic learning theories as an operations specialist so you can talk to talk and and, and be conversive with the people that you work with on an everyday basis so we've only got about 10 minutes left of your time. What is the next theory that you would say is something that you should get a grasping of and what's the gist of it? So we talked about current six-step model of curriculum development. And to me, that is really sort of the overall arching framework for developing a curriculum. And okay. so, you know, and we talked about that and, and, and really what I go over in the session is how you have current six-step model curriculum development. And as you move along that, you insert Kolbs and in your in your educational design methodology, you insert Blooms in your uh, objective writing. Um, I, so, so really, I think the last piece that we, we should talk about for a couple of minutes is um, Kirkpatrick's. And okay. Kirkpatrick's is about the level of evaluation. Again, mm-hmm. you get to that point of implementing your program. We want to link back to our objectives to make sure that what we did actually made an impact and that we actually achieved what we set out to do. To use uh, Will's example of knowing blooms, I was going to say, so after two weeks of trying to jam this in your head, what level of Kirkpatrick's were you at <laughs> of, of understanding blooms, but keep going. Sorry. No. So, so, you know, there's, there's been a little bit of a shift. There's something called the new, new world of, of uh, Kirkpatrick's level of evaluation. Um, and I remember this from, from Amitai Ziv. Oh, it's got to be got to be a decade ago that I heard Amitai talk. And, and for those of you who don't know, Amitai is um, a uh, uh, physician. Uh, I think he's the safety officer now at uh, uh, Shiba University Medical Center in, uh, in Israel, one of the early adopters of simulation-based education. And I still remember his slide. It's, it's a path. And there's some logs in the way. And he's talking about getting to um, uh, level four outcomes, right? And so trying to get there, I'm like, level four outcomes? What, 
What is he talking about? I don't understand. So Kirkpatrick's level of assessment is starts with reaction. And, and we all probably do this, right? So you have a course evaluation. You've all filled one out. Did you like it, right? Great, yes, I liked it. One to 10 scale, it was a nine out of 10, right? Yeah, two thumbs up. Um, that's the reaction level of, of Kirkpatrick's level of assessment, right? Did people like it? The newer version of that is not only about did they like it, but were they engaged during your content and did they find it relevant? Could they, could they think that they could utilize it in what they learned in, in training uh, on the job? And so it's about reframing the way you ask your questions. Not only did you like it, but you know, how do you measure engagement, right? I had people interacting during the session, right? The decibel level in the room went up. Uh, you know, I don't know how else you can measure engagement. There's probably a million ways to talk about, you know, figuring out engagement, right? If you're talking about eye tracking software and virtual reality, were they engaged with what you were doing, um, or do they think they could apply what they learned? Then. So that's reaction phase. Then there's level two, which is the learning. And this is where you, we look for confidence or commitment, right? I think I can do this on the job, right? I intend to do this on the job. So we might ask questions like, you know, list something that you may you know, utilize from this course, you know, when you go back to the clinical environment or, you know, from a one to five or one to six or one to 10 scale, you know, how how confident are you that you can implement this in your practice? Or, you know, do you intend to implement what you learned in practice? Or which of the following do you intend to implement in your practice, right? So there's different ways of asking those questions. Level three is about behaviors, right? Are there processes and systems that reinforce, encourage, reward performance of the behaviors, of the, especially those critical behaviors on the job? And so looking at people's actions on the floor, right? So I could tell people to, to do something I could ask them if they liked the course. They said, yes. Do you intend to do it on the job? Sure, I intend to do it on the job. And then I sort of go and watch and the behavior hasn't translated, right? So now I have to figure out why the behavior is not translating to what they're doing on the job. Level four results, going back to Amitai for a second, is about results. Does what you did make a difference? And this is getting back to the conversation that William asked before, make a difference to the patient at the end of the day, does are there short-term observations? Are there measurements? Is there something that suggests that clinical behaviors are on track to create a positive impact on what you are hoping to do? So if we go back to the central line example, I teach people to do a central line two, three hour course. Everyone goes, yeah, that was awesome. That was a great course. It was, you know, how engaged were you? I was super engaged and, or I was watching and everybody got a chance to practice and they got, I have different measures of reaction. Hey, do you intend to use anything we taught you on the job? How likely are you to implement this when you go back to full sterile gown, ultrasound covers, whatever it might be? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I tend to do that. And then I go and watch them and I'm like, hey, look at that. Right? They're actually doing it. They're actually gowning up and gloving up and working with a checklist and somebody's there watching them and they're giving feedback on, on the job. It was, look at that. The behaviors actually changed because you know, before we did this program, going back to current six-step model, we, we did a little assessment on the unit. And usually when we started central lines, it was just one person there. Mm -hmm. Nobody had a checklist. But now that we trained them on how to use the checklist and the importance of the checklist, look at this, their behaviors changed. But the final step is results. Mm -hmm. Did your rate of central line infections change? And that's really hard to measure because, no, it's not hard to measure. It's hard to quantify what made the difference. 
because, hey, we've implemented this new procedure. We've implemented that new procedure. We've implemented this new education. So the results piece is a little bit more difficult to assess and measure. But when we're talking about Kirkpatrick's level of assessment, we have historically lived at that level one, did you like it level. And so we are pushing people to move forward and look at level two. Will you implement this on your job? What's your level of commitment? Or level three. And that did like, you change your behaviors? Mm-hmm. Yep. And that and, and going back to just you mentioned virtual reality a couple of times. Unfortunately, that's about as far as we've gotten in virtual reality as a whole in simulation, right? Like we know that everybody likes it. We know that people are enjoying it, but we've now got to move on further and make sure that we're really getting the outcomes that we expect from it. Um, and that it's actually causing a behavior change. And I, I am a full believer in VR. Everybody knows that I'm using mm-hmm. VR in my job now. We're developing content, but ultimately we have to look past the, okay, did you have a good time and start going into how is this going to change your practice going forward? Yes. Jared, I know you're, you've but, got a, a hard out. I, I do have a hard out, but I do want to go back for a second because we were talking before we started recording here today about VR and my awful experience in VR. I got motion Ooh. sickness because oh, yeah. we were moving around today and everything else. And so I don't want to discount that that low level one reaction phase because if I have a terrible experience in VR from the first you know, get-go, you're not nope. going to get me back into it. And even if we can show really good outcomes at the highest level, if I have a bad experience, we're not going to get the number of people through it that we need. So it's a balance, right? It's not just, you know, forget about level one outcomes, especially with emerging technology. We need to make sure people like it, are engaged Even with Sim. It. Even Sim. Even somebody Sim. has a one experience you go bad, in order. and they go, no, no, no. Or go to the next Sim center and they come with Sim baggage. Oh, we see that all the time. Yeah. That, we have a whole podcast Daily. about Sim baggage. Which we need to have one, but. All right. Well, Jared, I appreciate everything, man. I know you've got somewhere you've got to be, but thank you so much for joining us. Is there any last thoughts, anything you want to share, anything you have coming up that people need to keep an eye out for? You know, I'm just going to restate my, my plea, right? Which is the fact that don't lock yourself into a box simulation operations specialist. Be an educator, right? Own it. Go out, understand these theories that we, we so just barely glossed over today. Really, you know, work and move yourself along Bloom's taxonomy until you can start composing curriculums and evaluating curriculums. One of the greatest joys and honors in my life that I've had in the last couple of years is I've gotten to get involved with an organization called MedEd Portal. MedEd mm. Portal is an yep. online journal of, of teaching and learning resources put out by the, the American Association of Medical Colleges. And, and I was, I'm fortunate that they uh, asked me to be the associate editor for simulation. Nice. And so I look at curriculums all the time now, and I assess their objectives. I assess their educational modalities. I assess their assessments. I assess how it was written up. And I never thought I was going to be someone who was going to publish anything. I never was, never liked writing. But MedEd Portal, and this isn't a plug, right? I don't get paid by them. My own opinion about it is that we're doing great work in simulation. We need to have an outlet to share the cool stuff that we're doing and get academic credit for it. And MedEd Portal is one of those outlets. But if you don't have the the foundational understanding of these learning theories, you're never going to be able to compose a well-thought-through curriculum that's going to meet the rigor of an academic journal like MedEd Portal. And so for many, many years, I think we all fight to have a seat at the table, right? We all want to have a seat at the table. And the only way what I realize is to have a seat at the table is to speak the language of the people at the table. And the people at the table are educators and deans and directors 
and they they all think and most of them probably do but they all think that they have they are true educators and have a good hand on this and i think we as operations specialists we as sim educators we as educators and facilitators in general need to be able to demonstrate that we have the academic underpinnings to to be at the table with them so as i'm hearing it this is basically your plea to get people to understand this because this is the ticket to ride this is the ticket to get the voice out there you know that people out there in you know our peers and people you know that are just coming up can talk if they can talk the language that is how their true voice is going to get out and how we all grow the you know all of us is that what you're basically saying I think that we, to have a seat at the table and to be able to push forward the field of simulation, VR, AR, mixed reality, online learning, all this stuff. Yeah, we need to have a seat at the table. And I think the only way, again, to have that seat at the table and to grow your own career is to have sort of a foundation here. Um, and and while it sounds complicated, you know, you can break it down. You take a couple of classes about it. You get a, you know, there's there's week long intensive courses about this sort of stuff. Um, sort of just sort of get that foundation understanding and then start digging into it. And again, the more you start writing curriculums, the more you start producing educational content and follow the, the roadmap, the better off you're going to be. And like any foreign language, the more you do it, the more you're going to get fluent with it and the more comfortable. Cause I know, like I said, I, I, I took your class. I was in awe. It was inspirational, but I'm looking at it one eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And I'm like, this thing is about a 10 to 25 pound piece of paper because of the data on it. But the more I'm getting used to it, the more it lightens up and I'm familiar and I get more fluent with it. I'm not there yet, but I now at least understand why. And I have the intent to be better at it. Yeah, and that's I, th I think that's it, right? And and the more you have these conversations, and the more that we talk about what we're doing and how we're building it and how we're assessing it, the better off we all are as a community. All right, guys. Well, Jared, again, thank you so much for joining us. I know you're going to be back with us here in the near future because we're going to have to talk about the Sim Core and where that came from and why we're doing it, as well as hopefully some repeat events coming up because it sounds like they're going to be selected again. So we will we'll get into that in a whole nother day. Um, but just again, thanks for your time. Uh, for now. This is David Shablock and William Belk signing out for the Sim Geeks podcast. David, do you want to do your spiel? As always, we can be found uh, all of the different uh, places you get a podcast. If you do not find us there, please tell us. We'll make sure we fix that, as well as on uh, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, anywhere that you need to find us. Submit questions, submit comments, uh, love us, hate us, whatever you want, and just uh, keep sharing. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great night. Thank you.